0: While you're standing, let's take our Bibles to the 139th Psalm, the 139th Psalm, and we will read the uh, Psalm in its entirety. As I mentioned in the uh, introduction, or right before I prayed, as I've been wanting to work through the Psalms, I know m- many years ago we we went through all the psalms. We did uh, about eight years' worth of going through the psalms. and uh, I've been going back to them in my own life and looking at uh, them from the, the, the lens of the human experience. Martin Luther said of the psalms that they are a window to the soul. And so as you go through difficult times, and, and even those times of not difficulty, the psalms are a special place for God's people. So we're going to continue that vein, as I mentioned. Psalm 139 Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them as they are more than this sand, I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, this is familiar territory and I pray that you would protect us from the familiar um, to remove the awe of what we're reading and may we look into the heart of David. May we see our own hearts. May we stand in awe of such a God that it would invite us to know him. To know him not just with knowledge to inform our heads, but knowledge that transforms our lives, knowledge that inflames our hearts, knowledge that will lead us into eternity where we will forever behold the king in all of his beauty. And so, Father, would you be pleased to show us a glimpse of him tonight, that our hearts would be moved, that devotion would deepen, and that our affections would be inflamed. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Many of you uh, have likely read or have heard of J.I. Packer's book, uh, Knowing God. Uh, it is certainly a modern-day classic, not so much modern now, as time continues to march onward uh, from when he penned that book. Uh, I believe it's a must-read book. Every Christian should read uh, Knowing God. It has been influential throughout uh, uh, the time of his printing, In many people's lives. And Packer said this What were we made for? Knowing God. What should our aim in life be? Knowing God. What is the best thing in life? Knowing God. What is the eternal life Christ gives? Knowing God. What in us gives God the most pleasure? Knowing God. Jesus would tell us in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, that the very essence of salvation is that we would know God. That eternal life is not measured by a quantitative life, but a quality life. A quality of life of knowing God. Jesus would say, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And when it comes to the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord speaking through him, Uh, This is one time that we have every right to boast. In fact, God would tell us to boast of this very thing through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. So once again, we see uh, as a spinoff from Packer's book, actually Packer's book is from the scripture, is that God takes great delight when we know him. And he wants us to know him. And when you come to Psalm 139, which I know is familiar territory for you, as I mentioned, is 139. Is that rare blend of theology and affection? It is that rare, that rare blend of right doctrine that moves the heart. David is overwhelmed, and if there's one word to describe the psalmist's experience in Psalm 139, it is that of being overwhelmed. Is Psalm 139 has been called one of the summits of Old Testament poetry. I love what Derek Kidner said about this psalm. Quote, any small thought that we may have of God are magnificently transcended by this psalm. Yet for all of its heights and depths, it remains intensely personal from first to last. And that is so true. This psalm, as we will see, is extremely personal. And I pray it's personal for you. And I pray it's personal for me. Because it certainly was personal for David, and he takes us to some loftiness of theology in this psalm in fact, Psalm one thirty nine is the most theological of all the psalms in the Psalter is that we 're going to encounter three of the uh, of, of the big words that defined our God: omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. and when you look at David in regards to this. The whole psalm is not only him being overwhelmed, but it's him being overwhelmed with praise. And it's praise because he knows his God. He knows his God and who he is as he's been revealed to him. And so as we break down this psalm under those three theological truths... My prayer, and it has been my prayer uh, even leading up to tonight, and my prayer even late into the afternoon uh, in my office, was that you and I would understand how theology is so important, not just to protect us from false doctrine, but theology so it would inflame us to such a passion for this God who reveals himself through sound theology. Now, as we read and we have read Psalm 139 and we see the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, and the omnipotence of God, it impacts every single human being. Every human being is confronted with these attributes of God. For the sinner, God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and God's omnipotence, it is a terror to the unsaved. It is an absolute threatening terror to the unsaved. Because they're exposed in their wickedness And there's nowhere to hide For the, for the saint For us tonight as God's people if, if we're striving To walk close to the Lord Jesus Then his omniscience His omnipresence And his omnipotence Is a great refuge to hide in It is a place of great comfort When we see what God has told us About himself And the reason why it's of great comfort Is because of the gospel Because it does the same thing to the sinner that it does to the the saint. It exposes us to the depths of our very being. We're going to see that. But because of the gospel, we're able to be like David, to be in the presence of this great and glorious God in all of his omniscience in all of his omnipresence and all his omnipotence. We're able to be in his presence and not be terrified in an unhealthy, sinful way. We're able to have the proper fear of God that thrills the soul that we would indeed have a God who would show us the splendor and the beauty in all three of these attributes of him. Spurgeon rightly said uh, on on the response of these attributes of God. He says, these should fill us with all that we sin not, with courage so that we fear not, and with delight so that we mourn not. And that's a wonderful understanding of the application of these. So all we're going to do in our time tonight is we're going to work our way through these three foundational truths of who God is as David reveals them to us by way of the, of the pages of the scripture and even a look into his heart. And as I mentioned, I hope that you're thrilled and I hope that your heart is warmed when we see the glorious beauty of our God and all these attributes. And so the first thing we see then, verses 1 and 2, and that is the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. That big theological word that means the all-knowing nature of God. You know that God knows all things. But what we need to remind ourselves often is that He knows all things about us. Individually. You remember when uh, the disciples came back and Jesus asked the question to, to the band, the, the, the Mary band of brothers? He asked them, who do people say that I am? And some of them said, well, you're Elijah and you're this and you're him. And, you're... and then he looks at Peter and he says, but who do you say that I am? You see, the, the Bible is never one to inflame our heart until we see ourselves in the Bible until we see God dealing with us individually. It's easy to sit under a sermon. It's easy to sit, you know, in a Bible study and for have it just to kind of go over your head to where it doesn't really dig deep down inside and speak to you. Well, this psalm speaks to us like it speaks to to David. And the first thing we see on this all-knowing um, attribute of God, his omniscience, is look at verse 1 and 2. O Lord, you search me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Is that God is all knowing in our daily routines. If you look at, the, uh, at just the language. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. It's like David is saying from sunrise to sunset. You know everything about me. You know all my gestures. You know all of my emotions. You know all of my feelings. I'm an open book before you. That means when we get out of bed in the morning. And that means when we go about executing our routines in life, there is absolutely no reason for a Christian ever to be routine. A Christian should have routines, which we all do, but life is never to be routine. And why? Because of the omniscience of God. Because that means no matter whether you're standing over a sink of dishes, or whether you're mowing the grass, or whether you had the noble job as a home educator, or whatever it may be, there is nothing in your life or my life that is routine. Everything comes from an all-knowing God who looks down on our routines and who has orchestrated our routines, and because He knows all of them, there's an invitation for us to walk with Him in all of those routines, some of your greatest fellowship can happen over a sink full of dishes. And some of your time of meditation can occur when you're mowing the grass. And so we see that David acknowledges that God is all-knowing, not in this, in the extraordinary. And this is something that I want you to understand. Is that don't look for the bells and whistles in the Christian life, don't look for the amount of transfiguration experiences. Don't run off to the next conference or to the or, or to the next um, uh, great sermon or the next great book or what or next podcast. Don't go there looking for for God to do some extraordinary thing through an extraordinary thing. God does the extraordinary work of making us like Christ through the ordinary affairs of life. It is the daily routines that he conforms us to the image of Christ. You'll learn much self-discipline when you have to mow that grass, like for me, when I don't want to do that. And God can be very real in those routines. And so David would say, you know when I get up in the morning, and you know when I lay down at night, you are acquainted with all my routines. Notice what else in verse 2. Is that he also acknowledges God's omniscience in his thoughts, in his thoughts. Psalm 139, the second part of the verse says, You discern or you know my thoughts from afar. You know my thoughts from afar. Do You know what the staggering thing when I read this and I thought about this is that we know that God knows our thoughts. But you know what? I don't know your thoughts and I know some of you may be looking at me tonight, but you're not here. You may already be out somewhere on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, already somewhere else. You may I don't know that. I don't know where your thoughts are, but God does. And, and David says, you know my thoughts. In Revelation 2.23 to the church at, the, at Thyatira, he says, he says, I am the one who searches the mind and the heart. Have you thought about that recently? How many thoughts go through your mind during the day? And the Apostle Paul would say that we are to bring every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. Every thought. How many thoughts do you think go through your, uh, go through your, your, your mind, go through yourself during the course of a day? And how many of those thoughts are godly? And how many are not godly? I would, I would say that the battleground of the Christian is the mind. How you think determines how you live. And so as, even as we come, uh, I think Paul Washer said that the greatest uh, hour of warfare for the Christian is during worship. Because your mind drifts and you're all, you're, you can be in different places. And here's the staggering truth about the omniscience of God in knowing our thoughts. But, but let, me, let me add a little uncomfortableness right now. What if every one of your thoughts right now was on that screen for all of us to read? How would you feel? Here's the staggering truth. God knows our thoughts. In his omniscience, he knows every single thought and he still loves us. And he still loves us. Despite the fact that we have thoughts that are not becoming a Christian, at times we have thoughts that uh, are unbecoming towards other Christians that we would never say outwardly, but in God's economy, thoughts and speech are the same. And so David is overwhelmed, not only that God is is in the ordinary, he's in the routines. You know when I get up, and you know when I go down. He also is overwhelmed that God knows his thoughts. And he knows his thoughts, and yet maintains a steadfast love. Now look at verse 3. Here's the third application of God's omniscience that should. Now, when you read this, it's important you understand that David is this is a prayer and it's a prayer of praise. And when he gets a hold of who his God is in his omniscience, his omnipresence and his omnipotence, it can't help but produce praise. And worship is not something that we orchestrate by order of service. Worship occurs when God reveals himself to his people. And that can be over a grave. It could be over tough trials. It could be on a Sunday morning. His worship is not orchestrated by man. Orchestrated is uh, uh, worship is orchestrated by God when He reveals Himself to us, and by way and in particular His omniscience, His omnipresence, and His omnipotence. And here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. Verse three: You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted or privy to all my ways. Here's a third um, manifestation of God's omniscience, his all knowing in David's life, which produced praise. Not only was he overwhelmed that God was in his routines of the day, his thoughts, but also all of his actions. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted, not in a shallow way, but in a thorough way, of all my ways. And here's the encouragement for the believer you are never out of the watching eye of sovereignty. You are never out of the watching eye of of sovereignty. And that is one of the strongest deterrents that Christians have against sin. As as much good as the internet does, as much good as, uh, as our phones may do, as much good as Google searches and all those other things may do, it has done much damage. Because what what you used to have to go look for, you don't have to leave the the confines of your home anymore. You can pump in so much stuff via the internet. And I'm talking in particular now about the devastation that pornography is doing in America and what it's doing in Christian families. It's so easy that you can, you can set before a screen without when everybody's in bed. It's just you, so you think. It's just you and that screen. Or it's just you and that, that feed. It's just you and that real, or whatever it may be. But God in his omniscience, and David would say, you know all my ways. If we would think far more of that, it would have a strong deterrent on what we put before our eyes what we put before even our feet where we go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he, uh, he wrote uh, a treatise on temptation. And he said that when temptation, and he was, he was writing in regards to lust, he says, when temptation is entertained, I'm paraphrasing what he said, he says, when temptation is entertained, the first thing that you lose is awareness of God's presence. And when you lose awareness of God's presence, whatever the context is in your temptation, do you know what happens next? Sin is is committed. Because you've lost the omniscience of God. You've lost the all-knowing nature of God, even the omnipresence of God. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that should not make us afraid. We should not be afraid because the gospel, the gospel has given us the refuge, but it should make us very wise because God will not have his children toy with sin. He will not have his children toy with temptation and that he'll bring chastisement. And if we forget his omniscience, if we forget that he is privy to all of our actions, then Bonhoeffer's right. When you lose a sense of the presence of God in your life then, then it, the gate's wide open to commit whatever sin that lies within the heart. And all sin lies within the heart of every human being. And Christians are not immune. All right, here's a fourth thing. Look at verse 4. Here's a fourth thing that David is overwhelmed with in regards to the omniscience of God. Not only does he sense and give praise because the all knowing God knows his daily routines from sunrise to sunset, not only does every thought come through the omniscience of God that was humbled, but humbled David, but also produce praise because he still loved. And that his actions, he says that God is privy to every single thing that I do, which further humbles the worshiper. But here's another one it's our words. Our words. Verse 4. Even before a word is in my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. One thing that we need to also do as Christians is we need to remember there's no such thing as a private conversation. Even if you think it's late at night, it's just you and your husband or you and your wife and you're laying there and you want to talk and you want to talk about other Christians or you want to talk about people in general, you need to understand something. There's never a private conversation. Jesus says, on the day of judgment, you will give an account for every careless word that you have ever spoken. And so David is keenly aware. He says, every word is on my tongue. Behold, you know it all together. So his omniscience in actions, his omniscience in our routines, his omniscience in our words. And I hope that you see more and more that what's being laid in Psalm 139 is the foundation for acceptable worship. Not only acceptable worship, but what is necessary to know God, and that is a humbled heart. A humbled heart. Now go down to verse 15 and 16. We'll go back and work our way through those, but here's the fifth thing. Here's the fifth thing God's omniscience, His all knowing, even before we were born, even before our very existence in this world. Psalm so 139, verse 15 My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made, being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And this is what makes ab- abortion such an abomination. This is what makes abortion the holocaust of our nation. Is because we we are slaughtering image bearers that existed before the foundation of the earth. Jeremiah 1, 4-5 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you, before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, how does that apply to us in the everyday life? We're not prophets. We're not like Jeremiah. This should thrill you to no end. Is it before you were even, before you even come out of the womb, God has ordained us to be and he ordained that we would have purposes. Where you're at right now in the sovereignty of God, in the omniscience of God, in the omnipresence of God, in the omnipotence of God, right where you are right now in your family, in your life, in your situations, in your circumstances, this is where God has ordained you to be for his purposes. I find that to be exciting. It makes the Christian life exciting. I tell you, it was, that, was, that was what ruled the day for me in the Navy many times. Many times. Is it when I'd have to go on a ship and I was going to go away for a long period of time and be away from my family for six, seven, eight months at a time? That ruled the day, knowing that the sovereignty of God had put me in a, in a place for His purposes. And you need to see all of life in this lens Is it before you were born, God formed you and placed you where you are for his purposes. That's what I think makes life very exciting as a Christian. Is that you didn't just choose to be where you are. You were guided to where you are for divine purposes. And his omniscience, he he knew you before you were even formed. Well, that's the summary of the first uh, attribute. Uh, that, well, that—that that is the listing of the first attributes. Here's the summary. Uh, A.W. Pink has said this. It's a good summary. Quote, "God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice." Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. End quote. Not only did I mention the national sin of abortion, but when we understand these, these, these uh, attributes of God, omniscience, omnipresence, and, and omnipotence, this is what makes the sin of complainings very serious. Because the sin of complaining is one of those tolerated sins that Jerry Bridges writes about. Respectable sins. It's anything but respectable. Because complaining is a direct affront on the attributes of our God. Because if he, did, if he, if he is wise and he makes no mistakes. And his omniscience, his, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence is bringing all things to be for his glory and for our good. Then it is completely incompatible for a Christian to complain about anything. Now I'm not trying to make it light. I'm not trying to say just well, just stop complaining because I realize the difficulty that is. But when we understand more and more who God is, less and less will commit the sin of complaining. The reason why that we struggle so much is that we know Him so little. And like Pastor Jonathan said this morning, the language of Christian ease is very easy to say. And I'm also I'm, I'm fearful that perhaps I'm too familiar with a God that I really don't know. And maybe you are as well. Maybe you know the language. But have you been gripped by omniscience? Have you been gripped by omnipresence? Have you been gripped by omnipotence? David was. And David is living a life of worship, overwhelmed with the omniscience of his God, his all-knowing God. He knows his daily routines He knows his thoughts, he knows his actions, he knows his words. He knows even before David came to be that he would be a shepherd king. He knew all those things about them. And David begins the humiliating posture of worship. Let's move on to the second one. The second one. Verse 7. Verse 7 through 12. And this is the omnipresence of God. And you know what that means? He is everywhere everywhere, all the time. Now listen to the language of David. You can just see more and more his heart is in tune with his God as he sees how small he is and how great God is. And that gulf continues to to deepen, which is the essence of worship. That's why it's one of the strengths of the Behold Your God series that we did um, is that Snyder uh, promoted a high view of God Creates a low view of man. And where there's a high view of God. There is the proper view of man. The problem in much of contemporary Christianity. Is there is a high view of man. Which creates a low view of God. Well let's read verse 7. 7 and through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven. You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol. Or the grave. Or hell. You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David asked two questions, two questions of God's location in light of where he may go. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? or Where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. Is that God is everywhere and he's everywhere all the time. Someone recently asked me, well, uh, is, God, is God in hell? And the answer is yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's everywhere. But here's the d- difference. God is in heaven in his holy love. God is in hell with his holy anger. And that would be the torment of the unbeliever. though, Though there won't be any unbelievers in eternity. To the unrepentant in hell, the horror of that place will be the absence of God's goodness. It'll be the absence of God's love. It'll be nothing but unrelenting wrath poured out with never a second of reprieve. And David would be humbled To realize that there's no place he could go. That God wasn't there. And is that not the comfort for you? You have been in dark times. You have gone through difficult trials in your life. And at the end of the day, how do you hold on? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Is it there'll never be a time for the believer that you will be absent from the presence of your benevolent God? Now, you will not always feel the presence of God. That's for heaven. But by faith, we can cling to the great truths of His omnipresence, that He is with us. And He's with us in His comfort. And He will comfort us in so many different ways. He will comfort us through each other, He will comfort us through His word, He will comfort us through prayer, He will comfort us through uh, singing he will comfort us by his very presence in those times when you have no words in your prayer all you do is just lift up a broken heart and he fills a room with a sense of his presence and he calms your fears and he calms your racing mind and David would say where shall I go? the answer is nowhere nowhere this is also our strength for our mission our mission it's a fearful thing to carry the gospel into a hostile hostile world it's a fearful thing to be uh, encounter uh, sinners uh, who are adamant against the gospel. And Jesus knew that. Notice when he gives the Great Commission. He promises two things. And Jesus came and said to them, Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority or power in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make all disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And notice how he ends that. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you go out and you attempt to pass out tracts or you attempt to share the gospel all by yourself, it can be lonely. And it can be kind of scary. But there's something about going out two by two, or going out with another person. The encouragement of the fellowship. How much more with the omnipresence of God. When Jesus says, when you go, I will be with you. The Apostle Paul, uh, we sometimes, I think, make him bigger than life. Obviously, he was the greatest Christian ever to live. But did you know that there was a time that the Apostle Paul was afraid? In the book of Acts, we read, one night the Lord came to him, and Paul was afraid. And the Lord said to Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on on teaching my word for there are many people in this town. What did the Lord do? He calmed his fears by his presence. And so what do we have then? We have the omnipresence of God. He is everywhere present. I haven't had you turn to your Bibles. I'm only going to have you turn to one place and that's right now. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. In verse 1. I want us to see the blend, the the, the blending here of omnipotence and omnipresence, and how those are the refuges, refugees for the um, uh, the refuges for the God's people, this place of safety. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, there's the omnipotence of God. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's omniscience and omnipresence. And notice what he says, I will be with you. Not just when life is easy, but when you are drowning, I will be with you. He says, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because the omnipotent God who formed you, the omniscient God who knows you, is the omnipresent God who is with you. And who is that God that's with you? It is the God of love. It is the God of love. I love this story of uh, what Spurgeon was saying. Spurgeon was talking to a farmer. And he had on his barn a weather vane. And on the arrow was, was inscribed, God is love. Spurgeon said to the farmer, what do you mean by that? Do you think God's love is changeable? That it veers about as the arrow turns into the, into the wind? And the farmer rebuked the preacher. said, no, of course not. What I mean that wherever the wind blows, God is still love. And no matter what. You go through the omnipresence of God is that vein. Wherever you go, he's there. Wherever, whatever you go through, he's there. Now, let's look at verse 13 and 14, back to Psalm 139. And we'll move into the, the, the fourth and last the, theological truth that overwhelmed David and produced worship. And that is the omnipotence of God. I hope you find encouragement that this is your God. This is a God who's all-knowing and still loves you despite us. Secondly, here is a God who is everywhere, who never abandons his covenant children. Thirdly, here is the omnipotence of God. He is all-powerful. Verse 13 and 14, For you formed my inward parts or possessed my reins. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is overwhelmed by God's creative power in making image bearers. But I want you to also note here that there is the creative power in the new birth. That God creates new, us as new creatures in Christ. But implied in verses 13 and 14 is the ownership. Is that the creator who made us is the creator who owns us. And the all-powerful God who spoke everything into being has spoke us into being. Who made us and knitted us in our mother's womb. You know what's easy to take for granted? Your five senses. Touch, smell, hear, see, taste. Just think for a minute the marvel of the Creator. And just, just simply that ability to touch to smell to hear to see to taste forgive the personal illustration but when I was in that hospital a couple months ago the week of the stroke and I'm laying there and I'm all by myself and I couldn't swallow and I'm and I'm told that I may never you have a way of appreciating things when they're gone and so don't lose track of the creative power. And I know we all go through physical issues, and we all we get we get older, and things break, and they don't mend. I mean, we all have that type of stuff. But before you go to bed tonight, I want you to marvel over the fact is that you can move your fingers, that you can smell, that you can taste. David says. Your omnipotence, your creative power has formed me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But There's also another aspect of God's power, and that is his sovereign power. It gets back to his omnipresence, but the omnipotence of God. Isaiah 46, verse 8, listen to these wonderful words. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. That's sovereign power. There's creative power, there's sovereign power. Robert Murray McShane said that the Christian is indestructible indestructible until God is done with that person that doesn't cause us to presume but what it shows is, is God says I've spoken I will bring it to pass I have purposed it and I will do it we are under the protective arms of, of omnipotence and that nothing will harm us unless it comes through the lens and the, and the hands of divine love, and it will ultimately be for good and for His glory. That's why I, I encourage you to read biographies, and especially read missionary biographies of what some missionaries went through. You know, Especially uh, uh, the familiar stories of Jim Elliot, you know, and even John Patton, and some of these missionaries who lost family members who, um, who, who, were, who were ate by cannibals. And yet they, they were able to look, look beyond the pain and see God's good purposes. And as a result, this is very true, is that he is not only the sovereign, omnipotent God of creative power, but of protecting sovereign power. And then finally, we see that his power, his omnipotence is unhindered power. Isn't that what Job learned? You remember when we went through Job? We spent about 18 months going through Job one of the key lessons that Job had to learn was how great God is and how small Job was. In Job 42, 1, 1 and 2, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be stopped. That provides for us Confidence. To live the Christian life in a hostile world. That provides confidence and courage to live the Christian life. Not because we're strong in ourselves, but because of the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God, and the all-knowing of God. Now quickly, let's finish up with uh, our responses. How do we respond to all these wonderful attributes of God? Well, David uh, provides us with three applications. And the first one is this. Look at verse 6. And 17 and 18. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. And then verse 17. How gracious, precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Friends, don't try to figure out the ins and outs of God. We are not told to understand his ways. We are told to trust his ways. And David said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Instead of me trying to be scholarly and try to figure out all the workings of God, what I'm going to do is just fall down on my face and worship the God of omniscience and the God of omnipotence and the God who is indeed omnipresent. So our first response to these attributes of God is humble amazement. Humble amazement. And and there's something that we have to understand. There will be no spiritual growth without humility. None. None. God opposes the proud. There will be none. And the only way to be humbled is in the presence of God. It's not by nature we can generate this. It's not by reading more of the Bible. It's by being in the presence of God that man is humbled. And you can't fake that. Humility is not a virtue that can be faith. Genuine God-developed humility cannot be faith. It only comes from this holy amazement of who God has revealed himself to, to us. Here's a second one. Look at verse 19 through 22. Here's the second application of this psalm of knowing God. Is that if we truly know him and we see the condition of our country, is that we will rise up with righteous indignation. Not so much for our comfort, but the fact is that we will grieve greatly because God's honor is being defaced. Because his glory is being shook shook at. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. When you're in an environment and you hear the, names, uh, the name of the Lord in vain, does that not feel like someone stabbing you? Does it pain you so much to hear the name of the Lord Jesus being, being blasphemed, the name of God? I tell you, that was so hard you know, in, in the Navy as you hear all the language. And to hear Jesus Christ being used as a slang, or to hear somebody say, God damn this, or whatever, those type of languages, it just just grinded me, it just hurt so deep. And it hurts you too when you hear the Lord's name. Look what David says. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Now he's not talking from an imprecatory way. David, he says, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? David is about God's honor, and he's about God's honor because he knows the God who needs to be honored. He knows his his God is his omniscient God, his omnipotent God, his all-knowing God. And as a result of this, David can't help, but in Psalm 119, 136, he says, my eyes shed tears. Streams of tears because people do not keep your law. When's the last time that you've been on your knees crying aloud to God for the state of our nation because His name is being blasphemed? I think we need more of that. I do. I need more of those sleepless nights of crying out that God would send revival not to make life easy for His church, uh, but that His name would be revered and that His honor would be restored to His church. Number three, look at verse 23 and 24, we'll close. So, how should we respond to, to this God if we truly know him? Number one, humble amazement. That'll produce a life of worship. Number two, righteous anger for his honor. And number three, humble self examination. Now, I say self examination, but it's under the divine hand of scrutiny. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know me. Isn't it interesting that David would ask God to search him after he has been exposed to who God is? He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is what a healthy Christian will do. A healthy Christian who knows God will say, Lord, prove me, search me, know me, because I don't know myself. And the healthy Christian will sit under the search lamp of God's word and they won't be defensive and they won't try to rationalize. There'll be an open book before God saying search me and know me and show me areas that's displeasing to you because I want nothing more in my life to please you, so please show me. And that's not easy to do because if you're serious, God's going to show you some things that's going to attack your pride. And he may show you some things that you need to go tell someone something. That you may need to get something right, but you've let pride get in the way. But if you're like David, David didn't say, search me and, except for this area. Search me and know me, except, not this one. This room is all mine. You can't have that room. He said, search me and know me. And he did it in the context, if you note there, he says, and see that there be any grievous way and lead me in the way everlasting. David was so enamored with who his God was that he wanted to get as close to him as he could. And that would require that God would search him. And there would be that constant cleansing, a constant, constantly exposing areas of weakness and areas of failure so that God would cleanse him and draw him closer and closer and closer. And that's why Martin Luther said the Christian life is one of continual repentance. Because we're always in need of searching. And there'll always be something To be exposed. Because we're not perfected yet. But the more that those layers are peeled back. The more humility takes over. The more that you become the attractive Christian. The attractive Christian that doesn't know the language of Christianity. But knows the Christ of Christianity. The Christ in all the wonderful beautiful splendor. Of his omniscience. Of his omnipresence. And his omnipotence. God help us to know this God because as Packer would say and rightly so and the scripture teaches us God takes great delight in a people that will seek him and we will know him when we seek him with all of our heart. Let's pray. Father thank you so much for the great truth and the example of David and surely a sinner saved by grace he was so we may have these very same experiences with our God, may you give us such a heart, a seeking heart, a whole heart seeking heart and that we would be willing to be searched and that what you expose to us we would confess and that we would lean upon the gospel and you would show us more of the, of the beauty of your love through your omniscience, of your comfort through your omnipresence and of your power for us to live the Christian life through your omnipotence. And may our theology be like David's that makes our hearts warm and devotional, not cold with a head full of facts. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.